All right. A reading this morning is from Mark 8. Well, we're starting in Mark 8, verse 34. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is God's Word. Thanks be to God. Glad we could all be here this morning so that we can commune with God through His Word as His community, learning compassion for one another in, in this world. So let's go in prayer that we can hear His Word. Father, we praise You that You have spoken. You are not silent and that Your Word is powerful to convict us of our sin, but more than that, to convince us of the sufficiency of Jesus for everything that we need. So we pray that You would speak this morning by Your Spirit to our hearts. In Christ's name, Amen. Last fall, I was... uh, a coach for my son's kindergarten soccer team. Well, I was kind of more the assistant coach, assistant to the coach, I don't know, whatever, whatever you want to call it. That's, that was my job. Uh, and kindergarten, kindergarten soccer is awesome and chaotic all at once. I don't know if you've experienced this before or yet, but kindergarten soccer, if they're in it, when your kid is paying attention and they're going for it hard, the way that only a five-year-old would, right? The, the sort of total disregard for their body and the bodies of others. You know, they're going at it hard or they're, you know, or it's also, they kind of lose focus too. There's always sort of the, the kid that has forgotten that they're in the middle of a game and is sort of watching and kicking the dirt and doing things like that. Here's the thing that's hard about kindergarten soccer though. It's not just the focus, because that's, you know, whatever. They'll figure that out. They'll learn strategy. (laughs) They'll learn the skills over the years. The hardest part of kindergarten soccer is learning that there are different rules than normal life when you're playing a game. When you learn to play games, right, this is a hard lesson. Because what happens when you're playing soccer, right? As long as they're going, making a play on the ball, right, you're going to bump into each other, kind of knock each other around a little bit. Obviously, you can't do too much of that. You can't go at the person, but, they, but you get knocked around more than would be normal, right? If somebody did that to you on the street, you'd rightfully be angry. And if they just kind of cut you off and bump you around, like, you'd be angry, right? But, so it was, it was always hard to sort of deal with that, right? Because when you're learning the sport, you're learning about what's okay under these circumstances and what's not. 
Because normal life, you don't do that. But when you're playing the game, that's part of it, right? But this is what all of life is like, is what are you trying to do? What story are you trying to live out? You, know, it, you can see it in miniature in, in the middle of a game, but it's true of all of life, right? Is that the, there are these profound questions that inform the way that we live our lives. What, what are we here for? Where did we come from? Where are we going, right? What is our relationship to this universe? I mean, these are the big, profound questions of, of philosophy, right? Of ethics, right? Is what, what are we doing? What is our life about? And increasingly, the American story is that we are from nothing and we're going to nothing. And therefore, we are able to define what it is that we want to do. And the goal is to live your happiest life. And by happiness, of course, we're defining it almost, almost exclusively in terms of your immediate emotional state. And we, can, we kind of debate whether that happiness is individual or collective, but this is the main story. But Jesus invites us into a different story. He invites us into his own story. Last week, we, we were, this, last week, this week, and next week, we're thinking through really what is the hinge of the Gospel of Mark, the turning point. Thought about the truth of God as, as Jesus' messianic identity was revealed last week. But here we see that that identity, the truth of who he is, has real purchase on the way we live our lives. So we're going to be thinking about the goodness of God and what it means to live into His goodness. And we'll see that there is a road, but there are dead ends off that road, and there's a destination. A road, dead ends, and a destination. So what is the road? It's actually pretty clear, right? If you, if you were with us last week or you just look a couple verses ahead or, or behind from where we were, Verses 31 to 33, you find out that Jesus has started to speak plainly about the fact that he is going to Jerusalem, will come in conflict, especially with the religious leaders, will be killed and rise from the dead. Speaking plainly about it. This is what's going to happen. Because once he has accepted, openly accepted the title of the Messiah, the anointed one, it will lead to conflict. And perhaps surprisingly to some with the religious leaders, but surprisingly to no one with the imperial forces of Rome. That it will lead to conflict. And this is what Peter has a hard time with. Not the idea of conflict, but the idea that Jesus would be killed. The idea that he might lose in one sense. And you might remember that Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. He says, Look, he's telling Peter, look, you're buying into an easy way out mentality. Let's just find the easy way out. Satan had offered Jesus an easy way out early on in his ministry. And what Peter is saying is, what Peter is imagining is that what, what the Messiah would do is muster the forces of Israel. I mean, kind of supernaturally charged, probably, but still that he would muster the power that Israel had, the, the military might that was there somehow latent in Israel to face Rome. And what Jesus, Jesus says is, that is the easy way out. 
In fact, the only way to move forward is the cross. The only way to do all that Jesus wants to do, all that God has in His heart for us, is for Him to go to the cross. And then, in this passage, in verse 34, He he turns around and He says, and that is the way for you too. Is to take up a cross. We're really familiar with the image of the cross. Uh, obviously because it's the dominant Christian image. But, the th- but we often don't remember or even know what it really means. Because you can buy a cute little cross to wear around your neck. You can buy a pretty cross to put up on your wall. You can buy crosses to decorate all kinds of things, but that loses sight of what the cross meant. See, because the cross was, in many ways, the dominant symbol of Roman power. Because crosses would line the roads in and out of major centers. People who ended up on crosses were not just regular old criminals. In fact, the cross was reserved for those who challenged the power of Rome. When Jesus, in fact, is is crucified between two thieves, that word thief doesn't mean somebody who just kind of stole. It means an insurgent who was hiding out and was stealing from the, from, and trying to waylay Romans and others to support their activity. So the cross was a symbol of Rome's power, Rome's claim, and it was unspeakable. In fact, you did not mention it in polite society in the Roman world. No one talked about it. And there were many reasons for this. One of them is that it was unspeakably painful and cruel. It is one of the worst forms of torture to death that humans have ever come up with. But, but, and this is much more important, it was profoundly shameful. Those who experienced it were stripped naked or mocked. And this is the tone actually the New Testament takes. The New Testament doesn't spend a ton of time on the physical pain Jesus endured. I mean, it's mentioned. It's not that it's not there. But the main thing, the thing that gets attention over and over and over again, is the shame that Jesus endured. The mockery. The exposure. Being treated as something less than human. That is what is emphasized over and over and over again. In fact, we mentioned 1 Corinthians last week and how you know, Paul summarizes the whole message that he has as being Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And in chapter 1, he talks about how the cross of Christ is foolishness to the world. In fact, it's worth quoting at some length here. This is Paul from 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. He goes on later to say, For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolishness of the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
See what he's doing? He's taking this idea of the cross and the shame of the cross, and he's saying Jesus has turned that on its head. The thing that was supposed to heap shame on him is in fact the sign of his wisdom. So, when Jesus says, bear the cross, he's not just saying, look, you're going to go through some tough things. He's saying, you actually have to endure the shame of me. Which is God's wisdom. But to the world, it is shameful. And that's why he goes on and says, look, so if you want to save your life, you're going to end up losing it. Because by this, of course, he means that you are, if you're going to go about trying to make your life significant, under your own power, if you're going to pursue different stories about how you could live your life that are going to look good, by, by, you know, whether it's recognition, whether it's wealth, whether it's being sort of the best at whatever it is you're passionate about, whether it's having the most impressive looking family, it could be any of those number of things. Even if it just gets reduced to getting through the day, that if you're going to live under your own power, if you're going to live under your own sense of self-made significance, you will lose. Our self-made significance is a delusion. It is a mist that evaporates. In fact, all of those self-made stories are so fragile. I mean, sooner or later, and you know, as you get older, you hit some bumps in the road, right, where maybe it looks like your career isn't going to go as well as you like. Maybe your family is going through some tough stuff. Whatever it is, right, and you start to realize this is so fragile, right? And if I'm going to trust in this thing, it could all come apart in a day. All it takes are a few strings to be pulled and it can all come apart. But Jesus is saying instead, take up my story. Follow me. Follow me into the way of self-sacrificial love and you will find life. We always have to remind ourselves, of course, that the Jesus' work on the cross is unique in a lot of different ways, right? He is the perfect substitute for us. You and I could never do that. We could never be perfect enough for ourselves. We could, of course, not be a good substitute for anybody else. In all those different ways, Jesus is unique. But when it comes to his character, that is what he wants to grow in us. And so in Romans, Paul tells us that the whole reason we're being saved is to be conformed to the image of his son, of God's son. To be conformed to Jesus' image, to his character. That's the whole point. But in the long run, redemption isn't just so that you're okay, that you're saved but aren't changed. No, it's so that you are changed. So that you have the character of God. That's a profound thought, isn't it? That that kind of character is what Jesus wants for us. I'm going to use several sports illustrations this morning. 
I already talked about kindergarten soccer, but a good illustration of this point of that kind of character being grown in us uh, came from an ESPN 30 for 30 documentary. These are the like short one-hour documentaries ESPN does. And there's one called The Four Falls of Buffalo. Now, I am not a Buffalo Bills fan. Um, but the Buffalo Bills went to the Super Bowl in the early 90s four times in a row and lost four times in a row. It's, in, the, in, in professional football history, just making the Super Bowl, even the back-to-back years, is, is a massive achievement, right? But to get there four times is huge, but also to lose four times is soul-sucking. Right? It is demoralizing, to say the least. What's interesting is the, the documentary opens up with Jim Kelly, who was the quarterback, a really ambitious guy. Uh, they actually go through in the documentary some of, his, like, some of his disappointment initially with being drafted by the Bills and not even sure he wanted to play for them because he wanted to be a competitor. But this is what he says, looking back. He says, you always wonder what it would have been like but you know what? I know I have nothing to complain about. I'm a very blessed man. And the narrator, this is the opening, reminds us that he lost four Super Bowls in a row. <laughs> and, then he says, uh, and then he says, there are times when I look back and look at those things I've endured personally. You wonder why sometimes. But I think the Lord was preparing me with those Super Bowls, with the Super Bowls we went through, for what I had to do when I was done with football. What he's talking about is he had a son that was born late in his career who had a degenerative neurological disease. And in fact, died when he was eight. So he had to take care of his son through those years. And that's what he learned through his losses. And, how to, and he then leveraged that into a foundation that's doing research into, into this, right? So that other children, hopefully one day, won't have to go through that. That is profound, right? That's the kind of character that Jesus is talking about. That is why trials come up over and over and over again in the New Testament. Sometimes we don't talk much about that in the church, but they're there over and over and over again. And I, I realize there is a kind of bigger apologetic question about sort of why does God let good things, like, like bad things happen to people. And I, I, I get that that's a... There's, that's a question we could get to at some point. But Jesus' point here is that if you follow me, you will endure trials because you are going to become like me. And that's something worth thinking about, right? If we want Jesus to have the character that he does, to give of himself, to be sacrificial in the way that he is, don't we also want to be like that? Isn't that the character that we want to grow in us? But there are dead ends to this, to this road. There's a few different paths you could go down. So Jesus starts to unpack this, right, in verse 36. He says, what good is it if you gain the world but lose your soul? And then in verse 37, because if you lose your soul, what are you going to do to get it back? Right, what, what could you possibly give? Because all those things that you amassed won't mean anything. And the point is really simple, right? That we tend to think about our happiness 
in terms of money or lifestyle or maybe being the kind of person who follows your heart, right? And yet we know all the cautionary tales, don't we? That there are plenty of people who are filthy rich and are miserable and horrible people to be around. Right? We know plenty of people who live an amazing lifestyle and are hollowed out inside. We know lots of people who follow their hearts and their terrible friends. Because they can't commit to being anywhere because something more interesting might come along that compels them, right? I mean, this is the problem with that whole way of thinking is that we think about our lives in terms of what am I going to gain now? Am I going to have a good time now, today, this evening, this week? And even if we're thinking out a month or year, a few years, right, like that's still, what benefit is that to you in the long run? And so Jesus says, look, if you don't want to deal with me now as someone who's coming to give his life for you, then what's going to happen when I show up in power? That's a profound question, isn't it? That isn't where he's going in verse 38 as he starts to talk about judgment. Right? He's saying, look, look at all that I'm offering. What you're going to bring to the table if you don't take this offer is not going to hold up. But I have everything that you need. So if we're going to break down some of these dead ends, one of them, of course, is to just say, look, this whole road that Jesus goes down. I mean, maybe I'm glad that he's willing to go down it for me, but I don't want to go down that. I'm, just going to turn, I'm not going to go down that road. I'm going to reject it. I'm just going to take this easy way, right? And we can tell ourselves that, well, that's just because you can't get through life living that way. Who wants to go through life living sacrificially? Now, this is a dog-eat-dog world, right? You've got to get what's yours. This is the whole mentality of a politically charged Christianity, right? It's to reject the way of Jesus and to grab power for yourself. You can do that on the right and the left. <laughs> but it's that mentality that rejects the way of Jesus. There are other dead ends too. One of them is that, so you reject the way, the other is you forget the destination. You forget that this is actually trying to get somewhere. Because you may think that, well, I'm going to try to live like Jesus as much as I can, but I still got to be focused on getting in to the next thing. Man, when you're young, right, that's what it's all about, right? Like I got to got to get into a good school and then I got to get into an internship and get into whatever field I'm trying to get into. And then after a while you're thinking about getting ahead. Right? What is it going to take for me to get ahead? And you know, again, maybe I'm going to try to do what Jesus calls me to do and try to live that way, but you know, the main thing is I got to make sure I get ahead. And then maybe at some point or another you end up thinking how can I just get through the day? 
Maybe you're trying to get ahead. Maybe you're trying to get in. Maybe you're just trying to get through. But all of those tempt us away from what Jesus calls us to. David Brooks, who's a columnist for the New York Times, uh, in his book from a few years ago, The Road to Character, writes this. He says, he starts talking about resume virtues and eulogy virtues. He says, the resume virtues are the ones you list on your resume, the skills you bring to the job market and that contribute to external success. The eulogy virtues are deeper. They're the virtues that get talked about at your funeral, the ones that exist at the core of your being, whether you're kind or brave or honest or faithful, what kind of relationships you formed. Most of us would say that the eulogy virtues are more important than the resume virtues, but I confess that for long stretches of my life, I spent more time thinking about the latter than the former. Right? We tend to think more about another destination, another goal in life, than what Jesus is reminding us. And we'll get to more of that in a second. But this, the, this is why the church is so important. It is a school of the cross, right? To remind us over and over and over again that the path of Jesus the path of following Jesus is still the path of the cross. And maybe another dead end is we just get comfortable. We just stop thinking about it all. I mean, especially if you grew up in the church, right? Maybe you grew up thinking about this. Maybe there was a time, maybe when you were a teenager or in, high school, or in college, when you were kind of really excited about thinking this through, but then you just kind of, after a while, are just living your life. And there's a place for a healthy contentment. I mean, I'm not talking about being discontent with God, what God has brought into your life. But it's when the, all the horizons, the transcendent horizon has disappeared, right? And then you're just kind of happy with how things are kind of chugging along. And you stop thinking about it all together. That's why C.S. Lewis says in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, right, that we are, it's not that we have desires that are too strong, but too weak. The problem is we're far too easily pleased. What God promises something more profound. And these dead ends, by the way, are tempting because they keep us from thinking about how far we might have to sacrifice things. And maybe that's part of the questions you have, right? Is, well, if I have to live like that, does it mean I keep letting people run over me? Keep sinning against me? It's a good question. It's not necessarily a bad question. It's a hard question, right? Because there is a time when you should overlook a minor offense, right? That it's actually the better thing to do, to just let certain things go. It's the stuff of parenting is how much do I just let go, right? And how much do I have to address? These are the hard questions, right? Like even like when you're a teenager, right, and you're dealing with your friends, how much do I let go? What needs to be talked about? I, I don't know. These are hard questions. But the end helps us to understand what are actually healthy things to address. Because Jesus doesn't just let things go unaddressed, right? Jesus doesn't just sweep things under the rug. And this is the end, right? This is our third point, right? The destination. He starts to get to it at the end of verse 38, where he talks about the Son of Man coming in glory. 
Now, what Jesus is doing here is bringing up Daniel 7, a vision in the middle of the, the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, especially the second half of it, is incredibly hard to get your head around. It's this Jewish apocalyptic stuff, and there's all this intense imagery, and you're, you're trying to sort of piece it all together. But it's fascinating that Jesus uses, in most of the Gospels, he uses the term son of man for himself all the time. That's the term for this Messiah-like, maybe it is the Messiah, figure in Daniel 7. Uh, is somebody who's like the Son of Man. And, and Jesus comes and uses that language. Interestingly enough, in Mark, Jesus doesn't use that language up until this point. There's one other occasion in Mark 2 where he does. But, but otherwise, he doesn't really use it until this moment. And then he'll start to use it more throughout the rest of the book. Because he knows it has those messianic connotations. And this whole image of Jesus, of, of the Son of Man riding on the cloud of God's glory, right? He comes, he's closely associated with, with God himself. And he leads Israel through suffering to establish a kingdom that lasts forever. So too, Jesus is dragging up this imagery, right? That I am that Son of Man. I am going to lead my people through suffering and into an eternal kingdom. And maybe it's that suffering piece that's the reason Jesus goes back to this picture, right? Is because it doesn't allow us a simple narrative of ever onward, ever upward living, right? This is not that. No, it is through suffering that the kingdom comes. And so, in fact, Jesus gets in the very first verse in uh, chapter 9 here, to say that, look, you're gonna see, some here are going to actually see the kingdom come in power. I think it's pretty clear that what he means is some of you are going to see the glory of my character on the cross and see the power of God demonstrated in my resurrection. I know it's kind of cryptic, <laughs> Statement, but it seems pretty clear that's what he's getting at, right? You're going to actually see the inauguration of the kingdom. You're going to see my coronation day when they crown me with thorns on that cross. And you're going to know that I've won when I've been raised from the dead. Again, they don't get any of that, right? It's pretty clear along the way that as plain as Jesus is being about it, they don't understand it. But that is where he's going. And he is going to bring his people together through the cross and the resurrection. Again, this is why this is not a path to just be run over. Because the goal isn't to get run over. <laughs> the goal is the redemption of our souls. The redemption of our bodies. The redemption of God's people. That what Jesus wants is to redeem us out of sin and evil and death. That's why this doesn't mean you just kind of shouldn't deal with somebody who continues to sin against you. No, you should deal with it. But it changes the way that you deal with it. It's the, it's the reason why this lifestyle of self-sacrificial love is not a dead end. Because what is it leading us into is the very presence of God. 
It's through the cross that Jesus is bringing His people into God's presence to be with Him. It is the way into His presence because it is Jesus' way. The cross. The cross always comes before the crown. If I could use another sports metaphor here, right? This is what it takes to win. A good athlete doesn't forget what the goal is. All the greatest athletes, right, were always focused on winning a championship. I mean, I'm not saying they didn't have faults. They had faults. But many of them. But the, all of them. But the, they were focused on that, right? All of their training was focused on that. I mean, the, you think about the lengths of guys like Tom Brady and LeBron James and what they do, right, and how disciplined they are about every little thing that goes into their body, about how they work out, about all these different, the, the sleep that they get and all these other things. It's legendary, right? And that's why they're great at what they do because they never forget what their goal is. It is always in mind. Paul uses that illustration of an athlete in, uh, what, in 2 Timothy, right? Like, you train to be an athlete not forgetting what is ahead, right? Not forgetting the goal. That's what it's like. And that's why the old theologians would say, like the whole point of you be growing in holiness, right? Growing in this way of the cross would be that so you are fit for glory. You are fit for God's presence. Because the whole goal is not that you get off the hook. The whole goal is so that you can be in God's presence and enjoy Him. The forgiveness of your sins is an important piece along the way for that. Like, let's not lose sight of that. That's, that's an essential piece of the puzzle. But the goal, the end of it, is so that you can be with God and enjoy Him. And if God's character is one of self-giving love, how will you possibly enjoy that? Until you start to learn the goodness of that way yourself. That is what the Spirit is doing in your life. is teaching you that the way of the cross is what Fleming Rutledge calls an alternative form of power. An alternative mode of power. It is a way of living into God's power. It's a way of sacrificial love. So what is it you need to lay aside? That's a hard question. Because I think it, you can, you can, maybe you're with me and you think, okay, this sounds beautiful, right? Like I want to be somebody who loves in a way that I'm generous and I give of myself. But what is it? What are the, in other words, maybe a good way to think about this is what are the stories that you're trying to live out in your life, the different narratives that are competing for your attention that you don't want to give up? Maybe you want to be the most interesting person in the world. You want to be straight out of a Dos Equis commercial, right? Like, you're going to have to give it up. Maybe you want your family to turn out a certain way. Maybe it will cost you the vision of your perfect family. Maybe you want to be successful, okay, but maybe it will cost you that. 
the litmus test of this is whatever asks you to operate out of selfish ambition, self-sufficiency, putting yourself before others. That is what you need to lay down at the cross. And look, the goal, of course, isn't that Jesus doesn't want your family to be healthy and do well. Jesus is not, doesn't want you to fail at your career. Jesus doesn't want any of those things. But more than any of those things, Jesus wants you to live out of his character. Live out of the cross. This is hard. Let's not blunt the edge of that, right? This is a hard calling. If you're going to rank the hardest sayings of Jesus, right, this is way up at the top. To be the kind of person that lives out of self-sacrificial love. But this is the deal. That is God's character. And that is the end to which you're called. And the one in whose presence you will bask for eternity is one who gives of himself to the utmost. The one who is self-sacrificial love. And if, the more we think about the cross and reflect on the beauty of everything that Jesus gave to us, the more we'll realize that as I, as you, learn to live that way, it is beautiful in God's eyes. That all that you left behind wasn't that much of a loss. But all that you've gained is to see the face of God. Let's pray. Father, we want to learn to live in the way of the cross. Yet we realize that we are uh, not strong enough to do it on our own. Our own hearts are often divided. So we pray that by the Spirit, you would teach us the way. And whether it is a fundamental reassessment of what we're doing, or whether it is a matter of finding one thing at a time, to give over to you. We pray that you would make us people of the cross. That we would learn that it really is better to give than to receive. That it is better to be those that love even when it hurts. So that we might be more like your son and be more confident in our identity as your children. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.